Reflections on Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 And they're having dinner at Frank's Chop House. Both Biff and Willie have had humiliating and what should be revealing days. And now they're all, three of them, are meeting at Frank's Chop House. Frank's because it's, it's time to be frank. It's the place of candor. All of us who have, for as long as we can remember, been weaving the myth anew every day because of the fragility of Willie or whatever, or because of our own needs. We have been participating in the people of the lie, that kind of thing. It's now time for Frank's Chop House. Now, Frank's chop house would be, would correspond in terms of the sacramental schemata to penance, contrition, reconciliation. It's the truth-telling time. It's time to, time to cut it out and tell the truth, be frank. Biff arrives. He says, isn't Dad coming? Because he wants to have it out with his father. This is the Frank, Frank's chop house. He wants to get down to candor. And Happy senses that and is panicked by it, you see, because what happens when a truth-teller comes in? You see, if we've got something going, the little story that we've got going around, we all, at some level, know that we've got a story going around. We're all uncomfortable when a truth-teller walks in. We say, wait a minute, wait a minute, we've got a truth-teller. So Happy senses that. And so when Biff says, isn't Dad coming, Happy points to this beautiful young woman and he says, do you want her? Let's get you back into this a little bit. Do you want her? And Biff says, oh, I couldn't. I I could never make that. And Happy says, watch this. And he shows how facilely is it coming on. In a way, he's saying, uh, I'll be your model. Learn from me. Here's how you do it. Let me show you how the desire works. See? Watch this. Uh, learn from me. He's a kind of panderous in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida. Panderous. Happy says, where's the old confidence, Biff? And Biff says, I just saw Oliver. And the tone of his voice tells Happy that Biff is about to speak the truth. That it's literally right on the tip of his tongue. And Happy says, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. I've got to see that old confidence again. Do you want her? See how he's trying to get Biff into this other little melodrama so the truth won't come out? And he does, actually. Biff just barely rises to the place of truth in this scene before he is subsumed again into the melodrama. The panic on the part of Happy and then later Willie is very interesting because they sense that Biff is about to spill the beans, blow the whistle on the whole thing. And it reminds me of this poem, uh, Auden poem, entitled The Door. Out of it steps the future of the poor, enigmas, executioners, and rules, her majesty in a bad temper, or the red-nosed fool who makes a fool of fools. Great persons eye it in the twilight for a past it might so carelessly let in. 
a widow with a missionary grin, the foaming inundation at a roar. We pile our all against it when afraid and beat upon its panels when we die. We don't, the door, you see, we don't know what's going to come through that door. Enigmas, executioners, rules, the fool that makes a fool of fools. We pile our all against it when afraid and beat upon its panels when we die. That's a marvelous couplet. And that's exactly what's about to happen here. Biff is about to open that door and Happy put his back up against it and says, hey, do you want her? Biff says, Oliver gave me one look and I realized what a ridiculous lie my whole life has been. I was a shipping clerk. See, the, the, what they've been saying is, uh, Willie had been saying, you were, you were a salesman for Oliver. He likes you. Go talk to Oliver. And he said, I sat there all day. Uh, Oliver made him wait all day. He said, I sat there all day and I realized I wasn't a salesman. I was a shipping clerk. And Happy realizes that what Biff is going to do when Willie gets there. And Happy doesn't want to deal with the truth, but he deflects it to, to Willie. He says, we have to lie in order to protect Willie. Remember how fragile Willie is. So you and I have to lie. He says, tell him something nice. Say you have a lunch date with Oliver tomorrow. You leave the house tomorrow. You come back at night. Say Oliver is thinking it over. And he thinks it over for a couple of weeks. And gradually it fades away and nobody's the worse. This is like Stanley saying a family business, you just keep the the uh, pilfering in the family. Well, this is a, the family lie. You just keep it all in the family. You just kind of keep it going around and then finally it fades away and nobody knows and nobody cares. And, and nobody had, had, a, had a bumpy drop out of the myth into reality. Biff says, but it'll go on forever that way. But you see, here's Happy very explicitly telling Biff how to proceed and justifying it on the basis of how it has to be done in order to preserve Willie's fragile survival. Happy says, Dad is never so happy as when he's looking forward to something. So remember that. Don't shatter. And Willie walks in and says, Gee, I haven't been here in years. Frank's chop house. And the truth is, he hasn't been to that place of candor in years. And the question is whether or not he will take advantage of being there now. Now, he has come from this disastrous day. This is the irony, not of Willie's life, but of life, which is at the moment when he needs the truth the most, he feels that he can, that he can least afford it. At the moment when all of the humiliation has left him at the end of his rope and he needs a good dose of the truth as a grounded place to start from, he feels because of the humiliation that, he, that, that it would just be the last straw. And that's essentially what Happy has said to Biff. He's fragile. He can't risk the truth now. He can't risk the truth. And Biff says to Willie, I waited all day to see Oliver. And while I waited, a lot of instances, facts, Pop, 
facts about my life came back to me. Who was it, Pop? Who ever said I was a salesman for Oliver? And Willie says, you were. And he says, no, Dad, I was a shipping clerk. And Willie interrupts him because he senses that he's going to spill the beans. You know, it's all going to come out. And Willie interrupts him. And Biff says, why don't you let me finish? And Willie says, I'm not interested in stories about the past or any crap of that kind because the woods are burning, boys. You understand? There's a big blaze going on all around. I was fired today. Now, what's Willie doing? Willie's putting his back up against that door of truth, and he's saying, wait a minute, boys. I want to tell you something. I'm fragile. Okay? Then he goes on. I was fired. Remember how happy he told Biff, we've got to lie because of Dad. And Willie says, I was fired, and I'm looking for a little good news to tell your mother. Because the woman has waited and the woman has suffered. You see this? We need some good news, boys. Wink, wink, wink. We need some good news. Not for us. See, Happy said to Biff, not for, not for me, for Dad. Willie says to them, not for me, not for you, but for Mom. Wink, wink, wink. We need some good news. The gist of it, he goes on to say, the gist of it is that I haven't got a story left in my head, Biff. Isn't that a, a wonderful confession? I haven't got a story left in my head, Biff. That's what happened to King Lear in the storm scene. Okay, the woods are burning. We need to go online for the sake of your mother. I haven't got a story left in my head. So don't give me a lecture about facts and aspects. I'm not interested. Now, what have you got to say to me? He, he arranged it all, you see. This is what is usually goes unsaid. He, said, he actually said what usually goes unsaid, which was, I'm fragile, she's fragile, we've got this thing going around, let's keep it, you know, the ball's in the air, let's keep it in the air. Let's not, let's not be puncturing these things, okay? That's usually unsaid. He actually says it, and then he says, now, what have you got to say to me? It's exactly the same thing that was happening between Happy and this girl who came into the restaurant. Little telegraphed communications going on about what you want to hear. What do you want to hear? I'll just say it back to you, and we'll keep this thing going for as long as we can. And this is all happening in Frank's chop house, which is not where it's supposed to happen. It's supposed to not happen there. That's why we go there. It's like the confessional. You go there to cut that stuff out. Auden, in one of his poems, says, When truth met him and put out her hand, he clung in panic to his tall belief. It's a very anguished and confusing scene in Frank's chop house where flashbacks come and go about Biff catching Willie and infidelity and, and Willie's brother Ben and so on and it's very confused and in the midst of it all Willie essentially comes unglued and in desperation Biff thinking that his father really has fallen apart in desperation Biff reverts to the lie he says listen pop listen to me 
I'm telling you something good. Oliver talked to his partner. I'm going to be all right, you hear? Dad, listen to me. He said it's just a question of the amount. So Biff rose into the region of truth there, but, but the swirl of that melodrama drug him back down into the fabrications. And Willie says, then you got it. You got it. You got it, he says. And Biff says, I'm supposed to have lunch with them tomorrow. I can still make an impression, Pop. But then he can't quite pull it off, and he says, but I can't go tomorrow. So his, poor Biff is caught in this, not knowing whether to tell the truth or whether to continue to lie. The scene concludes with the two boys going off. This young woman went out and got her friend and came back, and the two boys go off with these two young women, leaving Willie uh, in a terrible mess at the restaurant. But before they do, Happy, who becomes preoccupied with these women when they are there, actually says, even after Biff has confronted Happy with the fact of Willie's earlier attempted suicide, Happy is so concerned that his father, who's now behaving very strangely, might create a bad impression in the eyes of this, these women. Happy says, well, he, he's not really my father. In a certain sense, that's a fateful moment in Hap Lohman's life. The moment when we deny our heritage, deny what it is that gave us life and where we came from and all the rest of it. It's a, it's a very fateful moment, it seems to me. He's not my father, after all. In a, in a certain sense, that's a simple solution. Biff doesn't have because he is so connected to his father, doesn't have as simple a solution. Miss Forsythe, who's one of these women, says, oh, he isn't really your father. And Biff turns to her angrily and says, Miss Forsythe, you've just seen a prince walk by, a fine, troubled prince, a hardworking, unappreciated prince, a pal, you understand? And 30 seconds later, he is calling Willie a liar, a fake, and a phony. And, of course, both of those are true. But Biff is stuck with, that, with the truth of both of those things. And Happy has walked away from it. Willie is left in the restaurant with the, when the two boys leave with the two young women. And he asks the... Waiter, Stanley, he says, is there a seed store in the neighborhood? And Stanley says, well, there's some hardware stores down on 6th Avenue, but it may be too late. And Willie very anxiously says, oh, I'd better hurry. I've got to get some seeds. I've got to get some seeds right away. Nothing's planted. Nothing's planted. I don't have a thing in the ground. And there you have it. Well, as I said, this Frank's Chop House is the storm scene, Lear, the storm scene in Lear uh, brought into a modern play. It doesn't quite have the same consequence, of course. But Willie finally comes down to the recognition using the, 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 probably the most important word in King Lear, which is the word nothing.
nothing planted. I don't have a thing in the ground, which is just another version of what he had said earlier. I don't have any more stories left in my head. And what follows is a kind of parody on gospel mystery. The mystery, of course, is that you have to lose your life in order to find it. Uh, the mystery is that a seed cannot bear a thousandfold unless it dies, goes into the earth and dies, and so on. And Willie is gravitating towards his own suicide as a kind of parody of gospel mystery. And he knows he needs to get the seeds and get them in the ground. And it's a pathetic... Again, the problem with Willie Loman is that uh, he has not been informed by the nuances of the tradition. And so when these great truths start to break on the top of his head, uh, he responds to them in a, in a very parodied way. And we find him in his backyard, you know, surrounded by these apartment buildings, scratching around. It's nighttime. He's got a flashlight out there. He's scratching around trying to get some seeds in the ground. This is not an agricultural comment. Uh, th this is the story of someone who has not been grounded in anything, has not had the seeds uh, in the ground. And here he is on the threshold of his own death, desperately trying to get something in the ground. And Ben, the ghost of Ben, shows up. And Ben is a kind of Mephistopheles in this play. And Willie uh, and Ben talk about how it is the only thing Willie has left in his life is a $20,000 life insurance policy. And Willie, with obvious reminiscences of the funeral of Dave Singleman, begins to talk about his own funeral. And he thinks of all the mourners that will be there. And he thinks that that will be the moment when Biff will finally see Willie's life for what it is. He says, the boy, and he's talking of Biff, the boy will be thunderstruck, Ben, because he never realized I am known. He'll see what I am. And we will wait a few minutes to see what Biff, in fact, sees at Willie's funeral. He will see what I am. But you understand what's happening here is that he is going towards his death with his eye on his son Biff. Everything is being done with his eye on his son Biff. There is this moment of heartbreak. He says to Ben, Oh, Ben, how do we get back to the great time? Used to be so full of light and comradeship, the sleigh riding in winter and the ruddiness on his cheeks and always some kind of good news coming up, always something nice coming up ahead, and never even let me carry the valises in the house, and simonizing, simonizing that little red car. Why? Why can't I give him something and not have him hate me? And Biff comes out to Willie in the, in the backyard and says, I'm leaving. I'm not coming back, and I'm not writing. And he says to Willie, we never told the truth for ten minutes in this house. Pop, Biff says to Willie, 
I'm a dime a dozen and so are you. And then Biff cries. And Willie is so touched by Biff's tears. Willie says, he cried. He cried to me, choking on his own love. That boy, Willie says, that boy is going to be magnificent. Willie's transference, if we can talk in that corny way, is, is on to Biff. And Willie knows something. At this moment, Willie is very close to the paradox that you have to lose your life in order to find it. But he has not entered into the paradoxical state of mind. And so things are right next to each other. The magnificence and the death and dying and separation. Uh, but he can't quite bring himself to appreciate the paradox. Willie says, can you imagine that magnificence with $20,000 in his pocket? Greater love than this no man has and he lays down his life for his friends. It's, a, it's gospel value. It's a gospel mystery being lived out in a crude parody. There is also, we might note, the mimetic motivation. Willie says, imagine, when the mail comes, he'll be ahead of Bernard again. And very pathetically, Willie says, I always knew, one way or another, we were going to make it, Biff and I. And they make it by Willie committing suicide and leaving Biff $20,000. In Act 1, Willie had said, when he was talking with Linda, reminiscing with Linda, he said, remember those two beautiful elm trees out there when I and Biff hung the swing between them? The linkage between their lives is that intimate. And so Willie commits suicide. And the next scene is called a requiem, a little scene at the end is called the Requiem and it's four people at the at the grave the two boys Linda and Charlie the next door neighbor Gary Larson has a little cartoon I'll hold it up for you shows a man standing with his suitcase on a cloud before the pearly gates and there's a note stuck up on the gate which says We've moved to 4223 Maple Avenue, which is undoubtedly the address of the deceased. Willie has been surrounded by love. Willie has been loved. And in a way, it's been unconditional love. It's not just that unconditional love is rare, but that we are reluctant to accept it. We want to deserve it. We can't, of course. And even if we could, deserving it would be to destroy it. We would, it seems, rather be worthy of love or even to seem worthy of love. We would rather that than to be loved. And all the lies were going on, not because uh, Willie wasn't being loved, but the lies existed in order that he might feel worthy of the love. And that's the terrible tragedy. So everybody is at the grave site. Everybody begins to assess 
the life of Willie Loman. Biff says he had the wrong dreams. And Happy, who has essentially those same dreams, is very irritated by that, and he says, don't say that. And Biff says he never knew who he was. And Charlie says, well, he was a salesman. And a salesman goes out on a smile and a shoeshine. And when they stop smiling back, it's like an earthquake. But a salesman has to have a dream. And Biff says, Charlie, the man did not know who he was. And Happy says, don't say that. Happy says, I'm going to show you and everybody else that Willie Loman did not die in vain. He had a good dream. It's the only dream you can have to come out number one man. He fought it out here, and this is where I'm going to win it for him. Well, something is missed in all of this, you see. The four of them to take turns trying to assess the life of Willie Loman. But there is a kind of missed sacramental opportunity here as well. Biff rejects his life and Happy imitates it. But neither one of those do justice to it. So what I would like to do is tack on another little scene of our own to this play. Uh, in the genre of... Um, uh, Faust and, uh, and, and Job have these prologues in heaven and so on. We, we, we can have an epilogue in heaven or an epilogue at, uh, I don't know how, at the pearly gates or some kind of... What we need to do is get Willie into heaven. What, speaking metaphysically. We need to pray Willie into heaven because he's more of us than we probably care to admit. And... Um, it, it's a little bit like what uh, Goethe did with Faust. Uh, Goethe pulled out all stops, used all his great literary talent to try to get Faust into heaven at the very end. He convinced some people and failed to convince others, but uh, it was a Herculean literary effort. Uh, I'd like to try to do that using a, a series of discrete poems, uh, but having them sound as though a chorus is speaking that knows a little more about the situation than the four people who are, who are standing around Willie's gravesite. So I'll just, I've sort of arranged these poems uh, in a way that I hope will bring in another voice at the end. The last little scene is entitled a requiem. And of course the word requiem comes, is the first word in the old Latin mass for the dead. Requiem eternam dona eis domine. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord. And the next line is, and let perpetual light shine upon them. Well, I don't think the requiem uh, was accomplished by the four who tried to accomplish it. So we're here to lend them a little hand, and I want to do it with poems. The first one is just to see the scene at the gravesite for what it is. It's the second stanza of a two-stanza poem by Mae Sarton. She wrote on the, uh, at the, when her parents, she buried the, she uh, scattered the ashes of her parents. She says, we watched the wind breathe up an ashen breath 
and blow thin smoke along the grass, and that was all. The bitterness of death lifted to air, laid in the earth. All was terribly silent where four people stood, tall in the air, believing what they could. I thought of that when these four people stood there believing what they could about the life of Willie Loma. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Auden has a poem about the same kind of scene sort of after everybody leaves. He says, The friends who met here and embraced are gone, each to his own mistake. The, the point of this poem, of course, is that if we fail to perform the requiem on Willie, it will have consequences for our lives. The friends who met here and embraced are gone each to his own mistake. One flashes on to fame and ruin in a rowdy lie. A village torpor holds the other one, some local wrong where it takes time to die. The empty junction glitters in the sun. You can imagine Happy going off to fame and ruin in a rowdy lie, and Biff... Uh, being stuck in the village torpor. But in any case, the empty junction glitters in the sun. And something, a miss, an opportunity was missed there. A sacramental opportunity. Some years ago, I, I wrote this little poem. I've been, as, I've been concerned about these missed opportunities. And uh, I wrote this poem. I, I can't remember. I don't think it's been that long ago since I shared it with you, but I just... It's part of the chorus. The graveyard had been swallowed by the town, so they couldn't sound the cannons or the drums, lest rumors spread that some ancient war was on. But the boy who needed something sound around which his random grief might close fiddled with the mortuary fan as the preacher's formal assurance rose, his two thick fingers and a thumb stuck in a book at John and James and Thessalonians. But through the windy words he spoke, there came a sudden crack that the ratchet made when the safety latch was thrown, and the clacking of the ratchet backing off as the ca casket ticked its way into the hole. The racket truth that he was now alone drowned out the text of endless love, which now nothing but the risen earth could prove. But when they bury you these days, they take away the ground that the box and body have displaced, leaving not the slightest little mound for autumn rains to peck at, for winter snows to unaccentuate, the springtime's levee and the summer's dune, time's tiny ramparts in the war with grief are gone. But since they couldn't afford a metal box, they got instead a wood one, satin trimmed, which the grown-ups agreed was fancy enough. So because it was an unmounded grave, it went in a record rainstorm, quite concave, like a pockmark where a little bomb went off. But the boy that by then was a drinking man, moving on from town to town. It came too late for him. I mean, so much depends on what we do at the gravesite, you know. Uh, it's, it's where we can lose the continuity. It's also where we can 
establish it. If we lose it, then we lose our real place. But the same inaccessibility to the mystery of life that led to Willie Loman's spiritual disorientation has rendered his survivors incapable of the kind of sacramental resolution of the dilemma, of, of responding to the sacramental requirements of the moment. The literary critic Harold Goddard, who always turns a mean phrase, says, with rare exception, man has been a slave to the past but has refused to understand and love it. He ought to love and understand it but refuse to be its slave. We must repudiate the past, for it has sinned against us. We must forgive and love it, for it has given us life. You see, Biff understood one of those truths, and Happy understood the other one. Auden writes a little poem. He, he might as well have written it about Biff Lohman. His peasant parents killed themselves with toil to let their darling leave a stingy soil for any of those smart professions which encourage shallow breathing and grow rich. The pressure of their fond ambition made their shy and country-loving child afraid no sensible career was good enough, but only a hero could deserve such love. Biff said to his father, I never got anywhere because you blew me so full of hot air I could never stand taking orders from anybody. No sensible career was good enough, but only a hero could deserve such love. So here he was, without maps or supplies, a hundred miles from any decent town. The desert glared into his bloodshot eyes. The silence roared displeasure. Looking down, he saw the shadow of an average man attempting the exceptional and ran. B.R. Brinkman, who I quoted earlier, did a study of sacramental awareness, said the key to sacramental consciousness is what he calls structured imagination, which some people think is an oxymoron. Structured imagination. And Mae Sarton speaks of it. I think she speaks of it in a poem called A Hard Death. God's grace given freely, we do not deserve. But we can choose at least to see its ghost on every face. Oh, we can wish to serve each other gently as we live, though lost. We cannot save, be saved, but we can stand before each presence with a gentle heart and hand. Herein, this place, in this time without belief, keep the channels open to each other's grief. Never accept a death or life as strange to its essence. But at each second, be aware how God is moving always through each flower from birth to death in a multiple gesture of abnegation. And when the petals fall, say, it is beautiful and good say it is well. Eliot said, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Now this can be mistaken, just as the single man, the, day, the single man, uh, the one who is essentially a single because of a shallowness, can be mistaken for somebody who's single, who's uh, gone into the depths. Uh, likewise, 
this can be mistaken for the kind of uh, fabrication that Willie has been guilty of. When the petals fall, say it is beautiful, and good, say it is well. This involves going into that life, appreciating that life at some depth. Never accept a death or life as strange to its essence. As May Sarton says, keep the channels open to each other's grief and never accept a death or life as strange to its essence, is to learn how we are all grounded in each other, how we are we participate in what the tradition calls the communion of saints. We can't leave Willie's graveside until he gets into heaven, so to speak, until we can understand that his life was a groping attempt to do what life is trying to do and affirm it because it was that. Auden has a poem which could be a poem for Willie, it could be a poem for Biff, could be a poem for all of us. No window in his suburb lights that bedroom where a little fever heard large afternoons at play. It takes a while to get, get into those two lines, but those are marvelous lines. No window in his suburb lights that bedroom where a little fever heard large afternoons at play. References back to a child, time of childhood when the child is sick for the day and is listening out the window to the other kids playing and all of that mystery that goes through a child's head is going through a child's head. But in the adult suburb, one can't get back there. Something's broken. The linkage is broken. The imagination which was used for childish things has been surrendered at the threshold of adulthood. It's now not used for anything, except maybe to concoct fantasies. No window in his suburb lights that bedroom where a little fever heard large afternoons at play. His meadows multiply. That mill, though, is not there, which went on grinding at the back of love all day nor all his weeping ways through weary waste have found the castle where his greater hallows are interned. For broken bridges halt him, dark thickets round some ruin where an evil heritage was burned. Willie says to Ben, how do we get back to all the great times? Could he forget a child's ambition to be old. See, one of the reasons that we surrender the imagination is because we don't know how to use it sacramentally and seriously for the work of living in the mystery. And so we leave it at the threshold of adult life because we think that's what it means to be old and mature. And we swap the fourfold vision for single vision and Newton sleep. Could he forget a child's ambition to be old and institutions where it learned to wash and lie? He'd tell the truth for which he thinks himself too young. That everything on the horizon of his sigh is now, as always, only waiting to be told to be his father's house and speak his mother's tongue.
one does not have to sever with the past in order to be uh, the, the person one's called to be. It's an act of deeper insight. It's an act of deeper and more comprehensive interpretation. Deeper understanding. Everything on the horizon of his side, this is true of Willie and of Biff and of the rest of us, everything on the horizon of his side is now, as always, only waiting to be told to be his father's house and speak his mother's tongue. And now, once we realize that, Willie is once again with us, speaking to us. He's, we are part of his life. And now we have to learn from Willie. What does Willie have to teach us? What Willie has to teach us, of course, will be he will have to teach us indirectly. There's another poem that seemed to be part of the chorus. His name had once been Saul, until some voice he heard changed that. He heard it slightly wrong, was all. He spoke in tongue, tongues, but lived in Babylon and slept on a bench at the laundromat where he tried to put another nature on. Though we've lost his name, his name was almost Paul. He was one of the ones whom the Spirit half begat. And there he lies this Monday morning curled, dying half in Christ and half in alcohol, preaching unearned redemption through his hat to the passing citizens of a righteous world. And that's, I think, what Willie can preach, although he preaches it to his hat, is unearned redemption. Poor Willie spent his life thinking he had to either earn it or seem to be earning it. And that's why that was the source of all the fabrication. But once we start to learn from Willie, we can hear his voice. Uh, Auden has a poem called The Tower, and it's to be taken as a poem for Willie's life. It goes in part, This is an architecture for the odd. Thus heaven was attacked by the afraid. Yet many come to wish their tower a well for those who dread to drown of thirst may die. Here great magicians caught in their own spell long for a natural climate as they sigh, beware of magic to the passerby. And there was a willy. Heaven attacked by the afraid, caught in his own magic spell. I want to read one more poem, which is uh, one of my own. Not only that, but is uh, what passes for a last will and testament uh, from me to my children. So it uh, involves even a little more presumption than the usual one that goes on here. I'm emboldened to read it because I have identified with Willie Loman. I, but perhaps I need to say this before I read it. Let's just say that I know the author of the following poem better than he knew himself at the moment of composition. But the point of the poem is that in some way I don't hope to know him as well as his children might know him after he is dead. Were he to see his life through their eyes right now, he would be living in sin as surely as if he were seeing it through the eyes of anyone else. But he knows that their sense of life's mystery and their conscious and grateful participation in the communion of saints and their spiritual journey into regions uncharted by their parents 
will depend on them finding that the most authentic story of their lives can be most convincingly told if they discover it to be an extension of what they had seen crudely anticipated in their father's house and heard uttered in their mother's tongue. So here's a little poem entitled Codicil. A codicil is, the, is an amendment to one's last will and testament. What works on me is a whittler's knife. The whittling starts on the courthouse porch, where the whittler comes to begin each day talking with old friends he spent a life talking with of politics, weather, sports. The pattern seems a random one of notches, nicks, and thoughts, but the whittling stick grows smaller anyway. All the fat options are gone. He may yet decide to make something of it, a knick-knack, a child's toy, a memento of sorts, or he may abruptly turn to his distracted friends and come at once to the point of what he spent a lifetime trying to say and toss the little stick away for emphasis. If so, perhaps there is, depending on what the whittler turns to say, and without knowing what the whittler might have wrought, a blessing on his children sort of grace, for one who left another little piece of crude and circumstantial evidence, not for the cockeyed notions in his own head, but of what the whittler sought, and what he said, when after all the talk and shavings on the floor, the few words came he'd been waiting for. But the mystery lives, because the mystery is, that I will have missed the very last word he spoke with all the emphasis. Perhaps if you're nearby, you will have heard it, or later, left to reminisce, with loving eyes turned briefly down, you might see a cast-off stick on the ground and find in its unfinishedness a hint of why a flawed and simple man, grateful to have turned in the Whitler's hands, would write a will like this. Concessions to original sin made all around uh, as close to selfless as, uh, as, as things in my life come, I guess. Uh, it, it came from this feeling I had at the end of that play that Willie, like, like all of us, is left stranded at the Requiem time for the same reason he was left stranded all of his life, because of the absence of the sacramental consciousness and an appreciation for how tied up with each other we all are. When, when Biff says he didn't know who he was and Hap says, I'm going to do things just like he did and they dust their hands off and walk away it was so you know I was so struck uh, to, to use the poet's words here of how the empty junction glitters in the sun everybody goes off to their own mistake uh, it rebounds on the generation that can't on the survivors you know who can't see that in that life the truth of life itself was was visible and what we have to do is to developed the fourfold vision that allows us to see even in a life so surrounded with perfidy in a way, so surrounded with lies, even in a life that embedded in the lie, one can see uh, the truth of life 
we needed an epilogue to the epilogue to do justice to Willie's life. Uh, to do more than to say, to, than to hear Biff say it was a waste and to hear Happy say, I'm going to follow in his footsteps. It's much more wonderful and tragic than that. Uh, his life was a waste and his life was a, was, was a, was a wonderful kind of love affair. And that way, he's he's all of us. Because when we we may not be quite as bungling as as Willie, but if Red Cloud's speech in Nyhart's poem is correct, we will discover at the at the edge of the grave that nothing we have tried to do or done is what the spirit needs. We'll need the prayers and understandings uh, just as much as Willie does. This is the end of Reflections on Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.